You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. Gaudete. It is week three of Advent. It is. Pink. I'm wearing pink today because it's Gaudete week. <laughs> it's very exciting. I have Gaudete <laughs> socks. I have pink socks for That's perfect. this week. Perfect. Yes. I have to like do laundry several times so I can wear them all week, but <laughs> it is you. Gaudete. I'm glad you're doing We that. are looking ahead to Christmas as well, and we're going to dig into... Uh, a great hymn today. Looking forward to that. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin for supporting the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. Joining us today to dig into a great Christmas hymn, Chaplain Brian Hamer of U.S. Navy Chaplain. He writes a monthly column called The Lifted Voice for Around the Word Theology for the, Christ- the Curious Christian. It's found at whatdoesthismean.org. Chaplain Hamer, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Andy and Sarah, good to be with you as always. Well, thanks for taking some time for us recording early morning before you get to serve all the, the men and women in our armed forces in the U.S. Navy, Navy who are working hard to protect us and, and care for us this time of year. You're caring for those souls and caring for souls with the gift of music and hymnody. Today, we're going to take a look at a great hymn and we're going to go back, uh, say what, 500 years. We're going to look at one of Martin Luther's hymns, correct? Absolutely. All right, so we're going to take a look at We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth. If you have Lutheran Service Book, it's 382, 382 in LSB. First of all, when we said, let's talk about a Christmas hymn, why did you, why did you recommend this one? Martin Luther wrote 24 of his 37 hymns within a one-year span, from July 1523 until July 1524, including his first hymn, A New Song Here Shall Be Begun, other hymns from 1523 that our listeners may know. Dear Christians, one and all, rejoice. From depths of woe I cry to thee. Ah, God, from heaven look down. May God bestow on us his grace. Savior of the nations, come. And the one we are looking at today, the first Lutheran Christmas hymn, We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth. And Andy and Sarah, can I just offer some fun facts about Martin Luther as a hymn writer before we dig into the hymn? Yes, please. All right, I'm going to give you seven fun facts about Luther as a hymn writer. Six of them are true. See if you can figure out which one is apocryphal. (laughs) (laughs) Luther was known as the musician in his monastery. I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. To be known as the artistically trained guy can actually be somewhat something of a slur from time, from time to time. Two. He gave fellow Germans the Bible, the Catechism, and the hymn book in their own tongue. Now, just to do any one of those would be amazing. Luther gave his people all three. Number three, Luther sang second tenor and played the lute. And the lute would look a little bit like the guitar to our modern eyes. Four, we already mentioned that he wrote 24 of his 37 hymns within a one-year span, July 1523 to July 1524 creating several 500th anniversaries this year and into the new year. Five, Luther described those who don't appreciate music as clodhoppers who should only hear the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. (laughs) Number six, his favorite composer was Josquin de Prey, known simply as Josquin, a way cool Flemish master who is generally regarded as the best composer of his day. And Luther certainly knew how to pick out and to emulate the best composers when he was writing his hymn tunes. Seventh, and finally, 
Luther was known to have ended performances of his early hymns with a mic drop until his spiritual father, Johann Stauffitz, cut the power at Wittenberg Gas and Electric Company and made Luther drop and give me 20. I feel like that's a, the last one is something that would happen if, if you did something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we all agree that number seven is the fictitious one about Martin Luther? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> but the other six are quite true. If our readers have Lutheran service book handy, way in the front, Roman numeral, page eight, the fourth paragraph. And I sometimes wonder how many people actually read the introduction or preface to a hymnal. But in Martin Luther's, well, I know Sarah has it memorized and she and Luther recited in German every night as her evening prayer. I understand that. But for the rest of us, Martin Luther's theology of church music is not in any one volume. It's spread out through his various prefaces to hymnals that were published during his lifetime. And so a Lutheran service book, Roman numeral page eight, the fourth paragraph, we have a wonderful summary of the theology I'd like to read before we dig into the hymn, if that's okay. We read here, Within the Lutheran tradition, the wedding of the word of God to melody was modeled by the reformer himself. Martin Luther had a high regard for music and urged the church to use it wisely as a vehicle for proclaiming the gospel. Next to theology, he wrote, I accord to music the highest place and the greatest honor, retaining the best of pre-Reformation hymnody, as well as adding a great number of new hymns to the church's song, Luther and succeeding generations of hymn writers continue to inspire the faithful to lift their voices in praise and thanksgiving to the triune God. And everything that we mentioned here in this preface, the wedding of the word of God to music, a high regard for music as the preaching of the gospel, and that music is next to theology as God's greatest gift. Therefore, we continue to write good hymns for the church. All of those are embodied in the first Christmas hymn of the Reformation, We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth. Yeah, there's a reason why Lutherans are so into hymnody and really high-quality church music and theologically rich hymnody and liturgy and all of these things. I mean, this has kind of been part of our heritage for as long as we've existed <laughs> as Lutherans because of of what Martin Luther believes in and teaches about, about music and theology. So this is fun. This is fun to dig into one of his hymns. Before we dig into the specific text, what are the scripture references for this hymn? Where do we find all of his all of these verses in scripture? So if you look at hymn 382 in the lower right-hand corner, there are a few scripture verses listed. This is not comprehensive, of course. There are other electronic resources that list even more scripture references. But the primary ones listed according to their impact on the text. We have Luke 2, 7 through 14. That is the familiar Christmas narrative, especially the appearance of the angels and the singing of the glory be to God on high. We have 1 John 1, 1 through 3 where St. John talks about how we are proclaiming a mystery that they themselves have seen, that they have looked at, and that they have touched. And then maybe most important, the one I'd like to read, is 1 Timothy 3.16. And amidst all the more familiar Christmas texts from Luke 2 and John 1 and Matthew 2 and so forth, I think this one sometimes gets lost in the mix, but it makes a wonderful theme for the service and for the sermon. So from 1 Timothy 3.16, And without controversy, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, 
preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And especially the opening verses there, opening words of 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. So as we sing these Christmas hymns, we want to look not just for sweet baby Jesus, but we're going to get that too, of course. But specifically, the mystery in Greek, in Latin, it's simply a sacrament. And the mystery, that is something we hear with our ears and we believe it, even if we can't see it with our eyes or understand it with our mind, God was manifested in the flesh, or he has become one of us. Hmm. Any other scripture references that you want to dig into as we look at this hymn? Yeah, the other ones to keep in mind would be the intro for this coming Sunday, Advent 4, from Isaiah 45, verse 8. Drop down ye heavens from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation. That in Christ, heaven has dropped down to earth. And then fulfilling maybe a lesser-known text from Wisdom, the book of Wisdom. When all was still and it was midnight, thine almighty word, O Lord, descended from the royal throne. Let's take our pause there, and we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more in just a moment when we come back. We are taking a look at a Christmas hymn, one of Martin Luther's Christmas hymns, We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth, Lutheran Service Book 382 with Chaplain Brian Hamer. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Eddie Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We're taking a look at a Christmas hymn with Chaplain Brian Hamer. Today we're looking at We Praise You, Jesus, at Your Birth, Lutheran Service Book 382, if you want to follow along, take a look at the text there. All right, are we ready to dig into the stanzas in this hymn? Chaplain? Ready when you are, Andy. All right. Well, shall we start with the first stanza? Yeah, absolutely. The way this particular hymn is put together, we have some continuity between stanzas one and seven. Some similar themes between two and six. Themes unite between three and five. And that leaves stanza four, in my opinion, as the central stanza. So what I'm going to go in that structural order, starting with stanzas one and seven, and offer Hamer's highlights. So hymn 382, stanza one, we praise you, Jesus, at your birth. Clothed in flesh, you came to earth. Now, keep in mind, we're looking for the theology of the incarnation, that great is the mystery of the godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And I love that phrase, clothed in flesh, you came to earth. We're always looking for a good analogy or image for what it means that God has become man in Christ. According to the Athanasian Creed, he took our humanity into his Godhead, 
great. If you want to be a little more concrete and give us something we can actually visualize, well, we can all picture what it means to be clothed, right? That on the outside, he is indeed clothed in flesh, fully man, like us in every way, yet without sin. And yet he is also fully God, and he has now dropped down to earth in the virgin birth. So the virgin bears a sinless boy, and all the angels sing for joy. And then typical for Martin Luther's hymns, building on the medieval precedent, at the end of every stanza, you get to sing Alleluia. When we get to Lenten hymns, you get to sing Kyrie. And that's echoed in stanza seven. All this, so being clothed in flesh, being born of a virgin, all this for us, our God has done, granting love through his own son. And therefore, what do we do? All Christendom will rejoice and sing his praise with endless voice. So in stanzas one and seven, Jesus is clothed in flesh. Stanzas two and six talk about what it means for us. So stanza two, now in the manger, we may see God's son from eternity, the gift from God's eternal throne here clothed in our poor flesh and bone. So once again, at least in the English translation, we have that he is clothed. He has our flesh and bone, yet still without sin. And then similarly in stanza six, here's something that Luther called the great exchange. So hymn 382, stanza six. In poverty, he came to earth showing mercy by his birth. Think of how Jesus indeed was poor. And even if he had been born with purple robes, a silver spoon, and in the king's palace, well, compared to being the high born of all ages, sitting at God's right hand, anytime you drop down to earth in this Genesis 3 world, fallen into sin, you still have a certain amount of poverty. He became the poor one so that in stanza six, he makes us rich in heavenly ways. Yes, he makes us rich with forgiveness, life, salvation. We have a place at the king's table. Supposedly in Haiti, a missionary once recorded the following prayer. Father, I understand that we are the poorest country in the world. Thank you, Father. May we also be poor in spirit. Amen to that. For the poor in spirit are the ones who in Christ are rich with heavenly treasure. My American version of that prayer, by the way, Father, I understand we are the richest country in the world. Thank you, Father. May we also be rich toward you. And then stanzas three and five. So stanza three, the virgin Mary's lullaby calms the infant Lord most high. Upon her lap content is he who keeps the earth and sky and sea. So in the first half of that stanza, we are emphasizing Jesus' human nature. Like any other baby, he's doing all that, shall we say, terribly human baby stuff. And yet upon her lap is not just any other child. Upon her lap, content is he who keeps the earth and sky and sea. This would inspire Paul Gerhardt a generation later to write, and again, probably a lesser known Christmas hymn, but this is the Lutheran hymnal, stanza hymn 81, stanza 2, where Paul Gerhardt gives us to pray, he whom the wind and sea obey doth come to serve the sinner in great meekness. Thou, God's own son, with us art one, dost join us and our children in our weakness. So this baby 
doing all that baby stuff on Mary's lap is the same one who was present in creation to call all things into being, and similarly stands at five. The very Son of God sublime entered into earthly time. One sacred text says that he is heaven and earth, God and man, eternity shut in a span. Now, this gets back to the mystery, doesn't it? Because the mystery is something that we hear with our ears, we believe it, even if we can't see it with our eyes and we can't fully understand it with our minds. It is a mystery that God would become man and enter into earthly time. But we know why, to lead us from the world of cares to heaven's courts as blessed heirs. I don't know if Christmas in Luther's Wittenberg in 1523 was as Tinseltown commercialized as it is for us today. I suspect it was not. Because you get up in Wittenberg, even with Frederick the Wise's uh, renovations and building projects and so forth, it's all about what we're going to eat today, right? What are you doing, honey? I'm going out to kill dinner that's going to be on your plate hopefully tonight. If not, our neighbors have some grain. Here, we're worried about Amazon packages coming on time and so forth. So I love that phrase to lead us from this world of cares. And maybe those Christmas gifts that are late that aren't quite right, but aha, we have heaven's courts as blessed heirs. So whatever may happen in this life, our eternity is secure in the next life. And that leads me to the central stanza, stanza four, the light eternal breaking through made the world to glean anew. Light, of course, is going to be a major theme in John chapter 1, which most of us will probably hear on Christmas Day, that the light always pierces the darkness. Just even the tiny light, if you ever try this outside, the light will always pierce the darkness. You would never come home and say, honey, the darkness pierced the light today. It simply cannot have that. So that light eternal breaking through will make not just us, but notice it will make the world to gleam anew. Now think that under the law, for a moment, to the federal headship of Adam. And by federal headship, we mean that Adam did something that affected all of us. And he plunged us headlong into sin and death. It's darkness. Darkness in John's gospel is simply a way of saying death. Christ brings light, hints, midnight mass. And I assume most of us on Christmas Eve will sing silent night, holy light to candlelight and all that symbolism that we see in the gospels and even galatians 4 about how christ is the light who comes into the darkness of death now just as a footnote in this modern context we all know what's happening in the world today in genesis 6 just before the flood we read about the federal headship of adam and the effects of sin so in genesis 6 verse 5 we read The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know what the Hebrew here says? Was only Hamas continually. You get that? Every intention of the thought of his heart was only Hamas continually. That Hamas is indeed evil. That's what we see on the news and going on in the world today. It it is into that world into which you and I have fallen in our sin that the light eternal breaking through will make the world to gleam anew for he brings the restoration of all creation. Thus, also in stanza four, his beams, that is the beams of the gospel have pierced the core of night. He makes us children of the light and that light shines through us to our neighbor this Christmas to proclaim the good news 
that Christ has become one of us to redeem us. I always am amazed at how much theology gets packed into our (laughs) hymnody. It is ridiculous (laughs) how much in seven stanzas, like there's so many little nuggets packed into this. And I know you mentioned the Lutheran hymnal 81. That's also in Lutheran service book 372, right? Oh, Jesus Christ, I manger is. It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. It's fantastic. But I love all of the the rich theology and all of these things that we learn about Jesus in, in these tiny little four-line stanzas that you can just pick one out and and it explains something about what we believe about Jesus. And this pattern, both of us were trying to figure out while, while you were talking, that pattern of of the first and last matching and then it, it gets to the highlight in the middle. That's a, a chiasm. Is that what that is? Yes. Sarah, ding, ding, ding. Yes, that is indeed a chiasm where what's in Andy. the middle is most important. Absolutely. That okay. the word came to mind, but I did have to Google it. Well, there yes, you go. Well, to confirm point, that point I was standing. He's the one that figured it out. <laughs> Wasn't quite certain that was right, but yeah, absolutely. And the, it's interesting, the, the original, this is based on, if you look at all the footnotes at the bottom of him, 382, you can see that Luther, per that paragraph we read a few minutes ago, he's always building on what came before. This is not, I got up this morning and I saw the sunrise and I wrote this hymn and not everybody has to sing it on the, this mm-hmm. Sunday. He's building on a one stanza hymn that the people would have known. One of the resources I checked identify that there are basically three, imagine this, basically three hymns that people got to sing in the late medieval era. There was one for Christmas, one for Easter, and one for, for Pentecost. Maybe that's why Roman Catholics only come to church two or three times a year to this day. Who knows? But that first stanza, if I can just read the medieval stanza upon which this is based, it's not going to match up word for word, but the hymn that Luther inherited said this, let us now all return thanks to the Lord God, who by his nativity frees us from the devil's power. For this, it is right that we sing with the angels forever. Let there be glory in the highest. Doctrinally correct, right? It's all good. Mm-hmm. But Luther turns it into a seven stanza miniature sermon for us to sing. I wouldn't expect anything less. Nope. Exactly. <laughs> all right. Final thoughts we have about, about three minutes or so here, Pastor. Some summary thoughts on this hymn. Absolutely. Uh, two things as we look both at this hymn and at the Lutheran heritage of hymns that we are celebrating this year and next year and beyond. First, Lutheran sacred music is incarnational, not attractional. Again, it is incarnational, not not attractional. And the word attractional, and thank you to Pastor Gregory Owens for, I think, I think he invented that word. To attract means we're going to sit down in worship planning. And we're going to figure out what we're going to do to attract the youth, to attract the unchurched, to attract people in this neighborhood that's going to get them to come to church. And you can just imagine how quickly that will go astray. No, our music is incarnational. It is simply being church at the light that we have received through holy baptism and that we celebrate this Christmas. It spreads naturally to our neighbor. That is simply what God's children do for that incarnation continues to be present with us in the word and in the sacrament. Thus, it is incarnational, not attractional. And finally, singing the gospel is preaching the gospel. Again, singing the gospel is preaching the gospel. The late choral conductor Robert Shaw, probably the name in choral conducting through the 20th century, used to put it this way. 
Christianity has the word made flesh. Sacred music has the flesh made word. Again, the word made flesh to the flesh made word. Thus, that Christ has dropped down to us as we sing about, and we praise you, Jesus, at your birth within that Lutheran heritage. And then when we turn and we sing that, Christ continues to be incarnate among us. I think it's okay to mention that before we went onto the air, we were talking about musical experiences in St. Louis and San Diego and Chicago, and how when you have a wonderful Mahler or Beethoven or Brahms or whatnot, and everything goes just right. It's like there's no distance between the people who are listening and the composer himself, even if he's long dead. And you have conductor and musicians and so forth in between. But ultimately, those people go home knowing I experienced a Bach, Brahms, Beethoven, or Mahler tonight. It's the same thing here at Christmas. In the Word made flesh, and now that flesh made word, we sing of Christ and Christ is present. And then we kicks it up a nudge as we kneel, hopefully in penitent faith, post be at midnight on Christmas Eve, to receive his true body and blood, the modern incarnation in the sacrament. Thus, by way of summary, the antiphon for this coming Thursday puts it this way, on that light piercing the darkness. We pray, O day spring, splendor of light everlasting, come and enlighten those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Amen. What a great hymn. Yeah, I want to go sing it now. (laughs) (laughs) Our guest today is Brian Hamer, U.S. Navy chaplain. He writes a monthly column called The Lifted Voice for Around the Word, Theology for the Curious Christian, found at whatdoesthismean.org. Chaplain Hamer, thanks so much for being our guest, helping us dig into this hymn today. Andy and Sarah, thank you so much, and blessed Christmas to you and yours. To you as well. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you. Anytime. Anywhere. Anywhere.